Okay, turn with me to Romans chapter 3. And uh, as he mentioned, this basketball tournament, it, uh, it involves two of my favorite things, really, basketball and the gospel. Not that those are the close in comparison, but uh, we're having a great time. And we need the support of the members of Calvary Chapel because for whatever reason that I still don't know is a mystery to me, every team in this tournament is against Calvary Chapel. You know what I'm talking about. They are rooting against us. So we need you guys to come to the, the, the completion of this tournament and you'll have a great time. It's, it's, it's kind of exciting. And uh, you need to cheer on the Calvary Chapel Warriors basketball team. If you could, please, I would appreciate that. Uh, there's some really good basketball players on all the teams. In fact, I don't want to embarrass him, but one of the gentlemen who raised his hand to be born again is even here now. And I thank God for that, uh, what the Lord is doing in his life. Romans chapter 3, Paul began there in verse 1 by saying, What advantage then has the Jew? We studied verse 1 to verse 8 last Sunday, and what Paul has done in the first two chapters is he has attacked the fundamental beliefs of the religious person, the moralist person, that is those who just believe in being a good person to receive some sort of reward that they cannot quite articulate in the afterlife, which there are still numerous beliefs today, or that religious person, whether it be, um, as he makes reference to often, the Jews themselves, which their religion is Judaism. And it's kind of this interesting paradox, this interesting um, thing to think about um, when it comes to the Jews, because they did receive the law from God himself, from Yahweh. Though they rejected God when he appeared before them, they rejected Jesus Christ in general. Um, though it is important to remember, it was the Jews who first got saved. A small number of them, but they did. And then it would be passed off, that baton would be passed off of spreading the gospel throughout the world to the Gentile people, to people like you and me, who are not Jewish. And he really upsets so much of their belief, and what the Jews are going to do is what we Christians should do is use scripture to try to defeat arguments or lies. Now what's interesting about that is the Jews in using scripture to defeat this argument Paul is making or the lies that they believe Paul is saying, which Paul is actually speaking the truth, is that we can learn something very important. That is even the enemy uses scripture to try to twist people's minds, to try to get them to believe a lie. And certainly that is true. We've seen it. 
When the enemy comes in to the world, he has a different method to the secular world, to the unbelieving world, than he has with the believing world. A totally different method. He comes into the church not quoting Adolf Hitler, not quoting Stalin or Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens. He doesn't do that in the church. The enemy, that is Satan and different demonic forces, come into the church in sheep's clothing, telling us they are Christians. And what they do is they use scripture. They use the Bible to try to twist the minds of the people. Try try to get them because... The general consensus, even in the worst churches in the world, the general consensus is this, that scripture is foundational, that we are to believe in this book called the Bible. So when prophet Owar comes on the scene, however many years ago he did come on the scene, he uses the Bible. He quotes from scripture and he twists the minds of his followers. And these type of false prophets like prophet Awar, who is absolutely preaching a doctrine of demons is just like his father, Satan. And if you think that's too harsh, in John chapter 8, we learn that Jesus calls the Pharisees and the religious leaders sons of Satan, sons of the devil. I mean, if you want to get into probably just about the most controversial conversation in all of the Bible, it's in John 8. And you know what's interesting is they didn't even want to kill him after he called him son of Satan. Do you know when they wanted to kill him in John 8? When he says, before Abraham was, I am. He said, Abraham, look forward to my day. And they said to him, you're not even 50 years old and you know Abraham? He goes, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. And it wasn't just that he said that he existed before Abraham. You understand the I am statement is that statement that God made to Moses in the burning bush. It is that Hebrew alphabetical. It's I am the first. I am the last. Jesus was claiming to be in John 8, Yahweh himself. And they picked up stones to kill him. They're like, this guy is actually telling us. The man standing before us is telling us that he is Yahweh. That he is the I am. That he is God. But Satan is the one who controls these types of false teachers. And... We know that to be true because after Jesus Christ was baptized, he went into the wilderness being led by the Spirit to be tested by 
Lucifer. And Lucifer began quoting scriptures. He says that if you cast yourself from this rock, from this cliff, then the Father will send his angels to take charge over you, to protect you, that you may not dash your foot upon the rocks. And Jesus then quotes scripture again. So you have Jesus Christ, the creator of the world, now human flesh, and in weakness because he's hungry, quoting scripture every time to Satan, and Satan quotes the scripture back. Now what's interesting is Jesus uses the scriptures every time, and Satan uses the scriptures part of the time. Because the real trap of the enemy is he'll begin with the scriptures, oftentimes in the church, but he'll lead you away from the scripture. And in the first two chapters of Romans, what Paul does is he presents these apparent, but not, but apparent to the Jews problems that we discussed last week in these first eight verses. And that is that You've attacked the people of God, you've attacked God's promise, and you have attacked God's purity. And Paul addresses that. What advantage has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. The, the oracles is probably not the best translation, it's the words of God, the spoken word of God. I was witnessing to one of my brothers many years ago, and um, I, I said to him, you know, it just seems like such a tragedy. One of the, one of the greatest things, it, it may be like the greatest shame that I can think of is spending your entire life and, and, and more so than going to hell, spending your entire life on earth never having read the Bible. I mean, what a wasted, wasted life. And yet, not only does the secular world not read the Bible, many in the church do not read their Bibles. I don't want to shame us with the statistics today, but if you know yourself, if you're not reading your Bible on a daily basis, you have a serious problem. Reading your Bible is like taking a bath or a shower. You can get away with it for one day without anybody else noticing. After two days or three days of not taking a bath or a shower, your friends will notice and your wife if you do not take a shower for a month, everyone in a 100 meter radius will notice. And unfortunately, not only out in the world can we definitely smell people are not being washed with the water of God's word, but I'm afraid that even in the church, we can smell people walking in those doors. And I'm not talking about physically. It smells a little fleshy here. Scripture. The oracles. Do you know that he could have used so many manner 
of arguments against the Jews. Because his, his whole argument here is, you're not right with God. Nothing you can do can make you right with God. You cannot be born again because of your goodness. You cannot be born again because of your righteousness. And listen, we sit here this morning and I know probably the majority of us, if not all of us, are like, well, that's right. I need the cross. I need sacrifice. Why is this such a reoccurring, redundant issue in the Bible? Well, we're going to learn later why. But he could have given so many different arguments other than Scripture. He could have said, okay, if you can be saved based on your good deeds, why is there still death? Why are people still dying? What is the cause of death? Is it just physical decay? But then what's the cause of physical decay? Physical decay. What are the reasons that the human race is dying? Well, the Bible teaches us, and the Jews would have known this. The reason for it is sin. The wages of sin is death. And so much so that this is a reality, and people understand this, that the Word of Faith movement The prosperity gospel, which plagues Kenya, most of its churches are this, actually have doctrines that if you exercise your faith to the degree, uh, to a a high enough degree, that you won't even die. Do you know that Kenneth Hagin believed he was never going to die because of his faith? Do you know that even Kenneth Copeland to this very day believes he will not die because of his faith? That he will continue to regenerate his health until the point where he will live 100, 200, 300 years old? He still believes this. He tells people this. But the, the problem with this belief is, yes, if they were perfectly righteous, they would not die. Jesus would have never died from physical decay because he never sinned. He chose to die on the cross so that we could be set free from our sin and reconciled back to God. So Paul could have used the argument of death, but he doesn't, to prove the guilt of the human race. Secondly, he could have used the argument of history. He could have said, Okay, if we're innocent and, and, and the religious leaders are righteous, then why has God constantly judged the human race? Not just the nation of Israel and all of their captivity and all of the death and all of the disease and all of the starvation, but the whole human race has been judged by God during the flood completely destroyed. And some scholars, as I've mentioned before, believe that there could have been as many people on the planet then as there is today, anywhere from six to eight billion people dead during the flood. 
He could have used that argument of history or death to prove the the guilt and the shame of the human race, including the Jews, because they believed the Gentiles were guilty and they themselves were innocent through their sacrifices in the temple. He already kind of uses the arguments. There's two more arguments, but he doesn't primarily use them of the conscience, which he talks about. The conscience is either excusing them if they keep the law perfectly. Even the Gentiles, if they kept the law perfectly, their conscience would excuse them. But because nobody keeps the law perfectly, The Gentiles' conscience is accusing them in chapter 2. Very interesting. He does use that argument of the conscience. He used the argument also, fourthly, but not primarily, of the moral law written not just on the Jews' heart, but it's been written on the entire human race. So because the moral law was written on the entire human race's heart, When we violate that, shame and guilt comes upon us. And when that comes upon us, we know we need help to the degree that even if we don't know the Bible, even if we've never heard the name of Christ, Romans 1 teaches us that we're still without excuse and God is righteous in even killing us, the Bible says. In verse Uh, 32, he says that they are deserving of death who practice such things, which is sin. God has every right to kill people, even if they've never heard the name of Christ, even if they've never read the Bible, he has a right to kill them because he, in his grace and mercy, has given to every human being the moral law written on their hearts that when they violate it, They feel the guilt and a consciousness that allows us to understand that we're guilty of breaking that moral law. But he doesn't use those four things to primarily give the argument on why what he is saying is right. He doesn't use the argument of death, which he could have, or the argument of history, or the argument of the conscience, or the moral law primarily, he goes to what the Bible constantly does to give the greatest type of proof, which is the greatest revelation of truth, and that is the scripture itself. What is the advantage that the Jew has? That they have been given the words of God. For what if some did not believe? What if their unbelief make them faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness, verse 5, demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man, certainly not. For how then will God judge the world? For the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory. Why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported, and some affirm that we say their condemnation is just. Remember, 
he is addressing three questions that he knows that the Jews are going to raise. Not only does he know it, he has experienced it in the past, as we mentioned in Acts chapter 21. Paul is attacking the people of God, the promise of God, and the purity of worship of Yahweh in the temple. They even said in Acts, this man attacks the people, he attacks the place, and he attacks the words, he attacks the promises of God. So these Jews are going to say, hey, then what advantage is it to be a Jew? Why have we been chosen if it means nothing? Because you've been entrusted with the responsibility to spread God's word. We talked about that. I don't want to keep going through it. Secondly, you've attacked the promise. So if God is done with the nation of Israel because of our sin... Then is his promise, now is he an unfaithful God? He made promises to the nation of Israel. Well, in Zechariah he did. And God is not done with the nation of Israel. Covenant theology is true and this is proof of it. That God has a covenant with the nation of Israel and in a future time during the tribulation period, every single Jew on earth will be born again. But then they say, You've attacked the purity of God. You're saying we're completely incapable of obeying the law perfectly. We're wicked and vile sinners. Then we should just, and because of our sin, the goodness of God is revealed because he has demonstrated his grace and his mercy and his goodness to us, then we can just keep on sinning. So that we can experience more the goodness of God. Why even attempt to obey the law if obeying the law does not make us right with God? He knows they're going to bring that up. And he'll address that all throughout the book of Romans, especially chapter 6. But let me read verses 9 down to verse 20. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They all have turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. He is, he is hammering it home. He, he is, the, this is the crescendo, the, the epitaph of the previous two chapters and all the way 
through uh, chapter 3, halfway through chapter 3. This is the closing part of the first sermon of the book of Romans, which there are several sermons in this book. He has convinced them over and over and over and over again. And now he ends it with scripture. We are all guilty. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. What Paul is doing here is in quoting from verse 10 all the way to 18, he is quoting scriptures from the Old Testament. It's called what, 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 what these rabbis would call it is a karaz in the Hebrew. A karaz is when they would begin quoting from the Old Testament during their teachings. A karaz means a necklace or a string of pearls, a string of pearls. So when a rabbi would conclude, often as he would, a Jewish rabbi, before or at the end of his message, he would quote the Old Testament. He would quote the Psalms or Deuteronomy. Obviously, one of Jesus's favorite books is the book of Deuteronomy. He quoted from it every time when he was being tested by Satan. And Paul is continuing with this good tradition of quoting scriptures. As he mentions at the beginning of chapter 3, what advantage then as the Jew? Have we been specially favored by God because of our goodness? No. Is there a historical advantage? No. We've been murdered. And I mean, it's like Calvary Chapel in the basketball tournament. Everybody's against us. It's the same way with the Jews and the whole world. The whole world has been against the Jews. There's no historical advantage to their race. I, I, that was probably wrong to compare the basketball tournament with the suffering of the Jews. These people have suffered, guys. As I have suffered. No, they have suffered. Murdered by the millions over the centuries. There's no advantage except that they were given the words of God. Do you, do you understand how important this is? How much God treasures this? This is the greatest treasure that humanity has. It, it is so powerful that the Roman Catholic Church murdered Thousands, if not millions of people to try to keep this book from being translated into the common language of the people because they knew once the Bible was uh, translated in the common language of the people that the people would realize that the Roman Catholic Church had been lying to them for centuries. It's like, wait a minute. I cannot find purgatory anywhere. What are we talking about here? I can't, I can't find penance anywhere. I can't find justification by works anywhere. What is this pope and priest and bishop talking about? And then uh, the largest revival that's ever come in the history of the world came, the Protestant Reformation. Why? Why? Because of the Bible. Because the scriptures, 
And so Paul, here in this portion, he does a karaz, this, this Hebrew thing, that he, this string of pearls, and he casts the pearls right before the people who were going to read this book. Unfortunately, some of them being swine. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 7, don't cast your pearls before swine. Well, he's doing that. And what he's doing is he's saying, do you religious leaders, do do you people not understand what was said in the Old Testament? How is it that this escaped you? How is it that in in quoting all these verses, like there's none righteous, no, not one. Okay, that's, that's easy. No, it goes further. There's none who understands, none who seek after God. They've turned aside. They've become unprofitable, all of them together. Okay, well, that's not so bad. Well, it gets worse. Their throat is an open tomb. Right in here is a graveyard of horrific death. Humanity speaks death to each other only all the time. Just death, 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 death. Their their tongues have practiced deceit. Death, death. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are are quick to shed blood. Now, who are these people doing this? All people. All people who have ever lived. Now, there's something interesting that I mentioned earlier that we needed to talk about. In verse 9, he says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have previously charged Jews and Greeks. So Paul is now addressing a different people group that he has been addressing the entire book of Romans up to this point. Because he just says he's not talking about the Jews. He's not talking about the Greeks or the Gentiles. That is, he's not talking about the entire rest of the world. This is a different people group now that he's addressing because he doesn't want the same thing to happen to you-know-who that has happened to the Jews or to the Gentiles that he has previously addressed for two chapters. He does not want us to become like the Jews. Who's us? Believers. He's addressing the church now. He's addressing the believers in Rome and all believers of all time. Saying, now wait a minute, (laughs) if if the Jews were getting excited because in Romans 1, I was accusing the Gentiles, saying they have become like animals, they still have a conscience, they still have the moral law, so they're guilty before God and he's right to kill them. And the Jews are in chapter 2 going, yeah, kill them, we hate the Gentiles. And then in chapter 2, he says, you're guilty too, you're inexcusable, you're just like them. And now they're mad at him, and he doesn't want now, he's so controversial, this Apostle Paul, he doesn't want now the Christians, you and I, to come along in chapter 3 to accuse the Jews. Yeah, we don't like you Jews. He's addressing everyone, specifically here in verse 9, Christians themselves. 
What then? Are we better than the Jews? Are we better than the Greeks? Are we better than the Gentiles? Are we better than all the people? Us Christians? Not at all, he says. Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they're all under sin. And then he gives them a string of pearls, quoting all these verses from the Old Testament. This is the x-ray in these verses of the human condition addressing our conversations, our conduct, and our condition. It is the x-ray of the human condition addressing every part of who we are, our conversations, our conduct, and our condition. Our conversation, there's none righteous, there's none who understands, there's none who seek after God, they've turned aside, they've become unprofitable, there is none who does good, no, not one, in our conversation, their throat is an open tomb, their tongues they have practiced deceit, the poison of asp is on their lips. Very descriptive. We would be terrified if one of those poisonous snakes that we can find in Kenya, like a a black mamba or a puff adder, which one of my missionary's friend's daughters got bit in Nairobi by a puff adder. And in the same compound, a different missionary family found a a spitting cobra in their little uh, store, in their garage. (laughs) He said, he, he opened it and the spitting cobra went up and spit and missed him. We would be terrified if one of those snakes bit us. And yet the Bible is saying our mouths are as poisonous as these snakes. It just hurts people. So he addresses our conversation, our conduct, our feet are swift to shed blood, destruction or misery are in their ways, our condition, the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So Paul, in quoting the Old Testament, is saying, hey, they're guilty. But we're guilty too. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. That all the world may become guilty before God. The Minnesota Crime Commission in the 1960s said this about children. They said, every child is born a savage. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His mother's attention and his mother's milk, his uncle's watch. Deny him this once and he will seize with murderous aggression if we're not so helpless would result in murder. This means every child is born a delinquent and if allowed to continue in their self-impulsive actions will grow up to be murderers, rapists, and criminals. And this portion of scripture in the Old Testament is even a worse description of who we are than that, that one that they gave. 
And it's not just the Jews, it's not just the Greeks. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Christians. Don't think we were guilty in the past. We are guilty as Christians in the present, each and every one of us in this room. Now, he's going to address later that we don't continue to sin and grace may abound. It, it's not, you know, I like the game of golf. I like the game of golf. Never in the history of the world has anybody played a perfect game of golf. It's impossible. It's just absolutely impossible. And, and, and you, you don't play to win, you just play to play. But just because it's impossible to play a perfect game of golf does not mean that you don't attempt to play. We still obey the law. We still follow after righteousness. We continually miss the mark each and every day. So when Paul says this, he's, he's saying, listen, we're guilty. Past, present, and future. We need to repent of our sins, but perfection in righteousness will never be attained by any human being in the history of the world other than Jesus Christ. So do not think we're better than the world. Do not think we're better than the unbelieving world, than the religious world. Now, we can speak out on certain things, but we are not better than them. Are we better than they, Paul says, Christians? Not at all. What is one of the biggest problems with reaching out to the world? And that is a self-righteousness within the church. That is the church looking out to the people and saying, we're better than you. We follow after Jesus. And do you know what's so interesting is Jesus doesn't think of us as better than any of them. You know, this basketball outreach that we're doing, it's so interesting to me how the, the Lord has turned the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I can struggle with these guys. I struggle with them. They're disrespectful. They, 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 they curse all the time. I'm always having to go around. Do you know how many people are coming in here trying to steal from other people? We're catching them all the time. We, have a, we had to, did you guys, for you, those who weren't here, we printed uh, these, these jackets and we, we have to have a, a, a task force within our church of doing security around here. Preston printed Calvary Defense Forces on the back of these jerseys. <laughs> I went and bought 10 rungus just so we could use them if we need to. Did you guys see? We have rungus, guys, rungus in the belts of our CDF. I think about these guys who come in, they're cursing, they're drunk, they're on drugs, they want to steal, they want to disrespect. And you know what is so interesting? When I can start getting to be upset with them, it's like, we're not going to do this anymore. You know what I'm reminded of? 
I am the same as those guys. When I was 16, 17, 18, 19 years old, I would go to this Baptist church in St. Louis, Missouri. We would smoke bangy in the parking lot and take shots of Jack Daniels whiskey. And then we would walk into the church and we would play basketball and we would disrespect the staff and the pastors. We would steal their stuff. We would curse. We would fight. And these guys are trying to minister to us and we would leave and we would laugh at them in the car on the way home. And now the Lord has me in Africa having basketball outreaches, thinking about shutting them down because I'm so tired of it. And the Lord says, are you any better than they? Not at all. Remember that I chose men to reach out to you through basketball and I have chosen you to reach out to men through basketball. Do not grow tired and well-doing for in due season there will be a harvest. And we have people sitting in this room now who have come from the basketball tournament. Are we better than they? It's the worst thought that we can have and and trying to reach out to these people. And if you've come to the basketball tournament, you realize really quickly, you know what? I believe Pastor Josh, he's not better than these guys. How are we gonna reach them if we think we're better than them? The same grace that we received is the same grace we need to give Let's have the worship team come up. What happens when we are stripped of our self-righteousness, of our thinking that we're better than people, of us remembering that not only was this us, that oftentimes this description that Paul uses, quoting the Old Testament, is still us. What it does is it takes the attention off of us and puts it on the only person who is actually perfect in righteousness, and that is Jesus Christ himself. You don't look over at Pastor Ross, man, he's really a righteous guy. Forget about it. I'm not. Jesus Christ is. We look 